0: time this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom i'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart they've got passion for god they're leading intercession on their schools they're set apart consecrated under god and they've got a vision and a mission for their life some of these ideas i think there are keys to certain ways of living i think that uh jesus gives us an example on how to live through the scriptures. One of those major examples is the Sermon on the Mount. If you go through the Sermon on the Mount, it's kind of this idea of Jesus giving us these principles on how to live. And it's not so much that it's like these strict rules and strict guidelines, and if you don't live by these guidelines, then you can't be a child of God. But it is that God, I think Jesus, desires that we live our life to the fullest. And he gives us these instructions on how to live to the fullest. And I think one of the ways that we will live into the fullest of who he's called us to be, in, in order to live into the influence and the impact that he's called us to have, we need to, we need to live lives of no compromise. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, okay? Let me just start us off by praying, God, I just thank you for your presence here. Holy Spirit, I just invite you into this room, each one of us, we open our hearts to hear from you, Lord God. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would help me in my weakness. I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of your plans and your will this morning, that I just ask you that you would give me the truth to deliver, pray that the truth would set us free, I pray that even if one line changes one student in this room, God, I just pray, God, that you would do a work in each one of us. We open our hearts, we receive from you this morning. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. So compromise means the settlement of a dispute by concessions on both or all sides. So it's kind of this idea when you compromise, you concede to an argument, you settle, you give in, you kind of give in to the norm, you give in to sin, you give in to temptation. So when we live a life of compromise, uh, I think we're primarily talking about sin issues. I know that, you know, I think a life of compromise can look like someone that, you know, spends hours and hours in front of the TV every day, or someone that spends... Hour, you know, four hours a day playing video games. I think that could be living a life of compromise. But I think when it comes down to it, if we're putting something like TV before the Lord or something like video games before God or or obviously sin issues, you know, we're talking about idolatry. We're talking about sex outside the bonds of marriage. We're talking about drunkenness. I think living a life of compromise, if we are, if we are living in compromise, then we're just settling. We're just kind of, you know... Uh, giving in to the norm of our day, giving in to the temptation, giving in to mediocrity. The average person, the average Christian that you see in your schools, which you know, we all know people and kids and young people that say, yeah, I'm a Christian, you know, I've gone to church since I was four years old, but you look at their life, and their life doesn't exactly line up according to the scriptures. And so I just want to talk a little bit about this idea of living with no compromise. And we see through the scriptures In Matthew 5, Jesus says, be be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What a charge. First Peter, be holy for I am holy, God says. The disciples, the scriptures explain that the disciples left everything that they had to follow Jesus. It's kind of this radical idea that they left everything to follow Jesus. Paul talks about beating his body and making it his slave so that he won't be disqualified for the prize. Philippians talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. In the Corinthians, it talks about testing yourself to see if you're in the faith. All of these ideas, all of these charges through the scriptures are an encouragement to each one of us to make an effort in our walk with God. If we don't make an effort to live a life of no compromise, we'll just go with the flow. If you don't have an idea of what that means to not not settle, to not... Just settle with the norm of our day. We'll just go with the flow. I like to explain it like, you know, you're in a canoe with, a, with paddles, and you're, you're, kind of, you're paddling upstream. The stream of the world, everything around us, the world that we live in, the fallen nature of mankind, that's what's around us. You know, the devil's called the prince of the air. You know, he's, he, the devil is cast to the earth. Okay? And so, so, so all around us, we're, we're, we're doing battle in the spiritual realm. I like to think about it like the like a river going downstream you know it's just fast current and that's the world that's the norm that's kind of people that live lives of compromise and we're in a canoe and we got paddles and we're paddling upstream we're going against the norm of our day and to live a life of no compromise is actually going to take strain and effort it's actually going to take you to paddle your canoe if you, if you go okay i got some momentum i'm I'm doing good, you know. I'm just gonna kinda chillax a little bit and I'm just gonna relax and chill out. And, you know, I think things are good at this point. I might just camp out right here. Eventually, the momentum's gonna stop. And what's your canoe gonna do? It's just gonna start flowing with the world. It takes effort. It does take effort to live a life of no compromise. And so, I don't think that this necessarily, when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, I have this question of like, what does that mean? Are we supposed to live perfect? Can a man live perfect in this life? I'm not so sure, but I think there's deep meaning to this. You know, when the scriptures say, without holiness, no one will see God. Well, what level of holiness is he talking about? What level of holiness do we have to attain to in order to see God? I think, I think in these parameters, and I ask myself these questions, and I hope you do too. It's just part of meditating on the scriptures, searching the scriptures. What's the truth of the matter? You know, I think in, in our day that we're, we're seeing a movement of young people that are like, you know, I'm kind of done with religion and church. And I'm kind of done with people telling me all of this stuff. I just want to know the truth. And it's good. The truth is what sets us free. We want to be people of truth. We want to be people where our hearts are open to where God can, can shake our, our ideas, our ideas that we've had since we were young. And he could say, no, this is the truth of the matter. So what's the truth of the scriptures here? What does it mean to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? As I said, I think, I think living the life of no compromise is referencing to sin. You know, we, we're encouraged in the scriptures to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow me. That's what Jesus says. The denying of ourself, the very nature of denying ourself, and I know this is basic, but it's good for us to hear. Denying ourself is to deny our flesh. When we were born, we are born into sin. We are born into the sin nature, and there's a very real battle between our flesh and the spirit. And to deny yourself, you make purposeful effort to deny what you naturally desire. The human nature naturally desires what's contrary to God's nature. So you have to have a conscious effort to be like, "No, I am a child of God, and I'm going to live a life of no compromise. Deny yourself. Take up your cross." Cro- the cross is a sign of death. The cross is a sign of death, dying to your, to your flesh, dying to that sin nature. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. I don't think so much living without compromise means that, that we live without sin. I don't think we're saying, you know, uh, live a life of no compromise so we expect, you know, if you're going to live a life of no that you're going to be perfect. I'm not so sure that we as human beings can live perfect lives here on the earth, but I think when Jesus says to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, I think it's an idea of having a resolve in your heart a decision within you that says, I am going to shoot for something. I am going to actually make conscious effort to try to live a life of no compromise. I'm not necessarily talking about salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. But we're talking about living into who God's called you to be. We're talking about being a generation that makes impact. A generation that's anointed. A generation of young people. That will rise up and deliver the word of the Lord. That will rise up and be the hands and feet of God to a generation. And there's actually some ideas that God says, well wait, I'm looking for something. I'm looking for someone. I desire a people set apart to me. I desire a people that would live lives of no compromise. It does take effort. It does take conscious understanding, searching of the scriptures, being like, I choose to live a life of no compromise. This whole idea of a resolve in our heart. A resolve in our heart to not compromise. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's a charge. Actually, that word perfect means mature. So he's charging us. Be mature. Be spiritually mature. Grow in your spiritual maturity. Do you know our lives as believers that we should grow in repentance and we should grow in holiness and we should grow in knowledge of God? There is no stagnant idea of a christian you know i've heard the term carnal christian there's no such thing as a carnal christian the fruit of a christian the fruit of a believer in jesus christ is righteousness righteousness is the result of our belief in jesus doesn't mean you're going to be perfect but it means you're going to grow in righteousness you're going to grow in holiness you're going to grow in maturity If you're standing still, and and it seems like everything's standing still in your walk with God, and for certain, if you're starting to fade into the world, you're in trouble. I mean, just ask yourself, do I have a resolve to not compromise? If we don't have a resolve, if we don't have a decision in our heart, if we don't have a desire, a, a passion in our hearts, to live with no compromise, eventually you'll compromise to the point of death. The wages of sin is death. You know what that means? It's talking about the wages, like what you get paid. You know, the wages of a Starbucks worker is $200 a week. Maybe. (laughs) Depending on how much you work. Got to know. That's their wages. They worked at Starbucks, and so what's due them is a paycheck. The wages of sin is death. The result of sin, what you get, what you and what I get in result of continued continued habitual sin is death. Should be somewhat sobering to us, but but still, nevertheless, we kind of we kinda fool around with sin. But still, nevertheless, we kinda like, well, it's it's okay, I'm young, you know. I'll serve God later. It's it's fine well, you know, I'll go to the party, but I won't drink, but really in my presence of being there and laughing with all the perverted jokes that are going on and sitting there with people smoking pot and being there, but I'm not partaking in the sin, but I'm kind of just dabbling in the sin a little bit. The wages of sin is death. Do we believe the Word of God or don't we? Are we Christ followers or are we not? Am I saying, oh, you can't be friends with sinners? No way. You gotta be friends, uh, you gotta be friends with sinners. I'm not saying we're, we're sinless, I'm saying carnal people, I'm saying non believers. You gotta be friends with them. But you are the influencer, not them. When they start to influence you, you enter into a life of compromise, you enter into a realm that's really dangerous, to where we see many and many, many young people fall away from Jesus. And we hear the sermons and we hear the preaching, but we don't take it to heart. You know, I heard one person say before that when we hear a message, but we have no application, no, like, uh, study, no meditation on it, no actual practice of it, it's just religion. We hear a teaching and we go, good teaching, guy, you know, that's great, man. That's really good, but we don't apply it to our lives. We don't change. There's no interchange within us. And then another preacher gets up, preaches something similar to that, and you're like, oh yeah, I've heard this, you know, that's awesome, yeah, that's just religiousness. It's like having a form of godliness, but denying its power. That's what religion is. No, have a form of godliness, hear the sermon, and embrace the power that God's given you to overcome. Embrace the grace, the power, the ability for you to live a life of no compromise. By saying yes to Jesus, you have said yes to receiving the gift of the ability to live into righteousness. It's not impossible. It's a lie for someone to say, well, this generation has it so bad. This generation has more pornography available to them than any other generation. And it's just so hard for them. We have this self-pity about us and we're like, well, it's just so hard for me. I mean, it's just such a sexualized culture and I just don't know. No! No! We have Jesus in us. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You have every ability to overcome sin and death. And so I know from time to time, I just kind of want to, Open the box of like, you know, questions and, and I, I think that we get in such a Christianized culture that we start to just, you know, we're afraid to say what we're actually thinking or we're afraid to ask questions within us that we're like, well, no, I shouldn't ask that question because I know that's wrong. And, and I know that going on in some of us is a lack of understanding of why does God want us to live a life of no compromise. Why does God want us to not have sex outside the bonds of marriage? Why are we not supposed to be drunk? Why are we not supposed to gossip or lie or cheat? And all the things that we know about, we hear about in church, we read in the scriptures, it's all right there. And instead of us just saying, well, we're not supposed to, so I'm just going to grit my teeth and try not to do those things, we actually gain some understanding. You ask yourself that question ask the Lord. God, why? Why is this here? Why do you want us to live this way? Because I see a lot of times when people just, when you just receive whatever's being said and whatever you read, but you have no understanding of it, you don't understand the heart behind it, God's heart behind the word of God, we kind of just wear out. We kind of just burn out. We've got to understand why God wants us to live in certain ways, and why, and who he's called us to be, and it all lies in the knowledge of who God is. It all lies in the heart of God, the very center of who he is. It's coming from somewhere. The Bible is not just written words that are on these pages. The Bible is the word of God, a very real God spoke, a very real God wrote with through the hands of people, what he wanted to say on those pages right there. It's someone talking to you. What were their intentions? What is his reasoning? Why? Why is an okay question to ask? A.W. Tozer said, how you view God is the most important thing about you. Now, I really, really believe that. Because I believe, you know, I see people that that... How they view God, you know, causes them to go do suicide bombings. How you view God, if you view God as this taskmaster guy that's just waiting to crush you as soon as you mess up, it's going to affect who you are, how you live, and what you do. You're going to live in fear. You're going to live as this person being like, I've got to attain to these certain things and I can't mess up. If I mess up, then he's going to crush me and I'm just really afraid of God and I just don't know what to do and it's going to affect you. If you believe, if you view God as like this, this, you know, back in the day, there was these shirts that said, Jesus is my homeboy. If you think, if you think God is your homeboy and you're kind of like, sup dog, you know, just, just, just chillaxing, you know, and, and he's kind of indifferent to the way we live our lives, it's going to affect how you live your life. Who is God? No one's going to be able to stand up on a stage and tell you, this is who God is. If you want to know who God is, you've got to go into the prayer room and find him. You've got to search for him as for treasure. I think many of us think that God wants to forbid us from these things. God, God doesn't want me to have sex because he wants to take away things that feel good. God doesn't want, want me to have lots of money because, you know, we're supposed to be poor. Whatever the misconception is. I think that in order to understand and see God the way that he is, we have to gain some new perspective. And like Tozer said, that how you view God is the most important thing when it comes to you. most important thing for us is how we view God. I also think, as a part of that, is how we view that God views us. How do you see that God sees you? In that same idea, you know, taskmaster or homeboy or whatever, how does God see you? When God looks upon you, how does he see you? I think we just need to gain this new perspective. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. There's this awesome story. Luke 9, you there? Okay, Luke 9, I'm going to jump to a couple of scriptures here and there, but I want you to follow along. I'm reading NASB here. Luke 9, verse 1. And he, talking about Jesus, called the 12 together, called the 12 disciples. And listen to this. He gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And then he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing, and to perform healing. (laughs) Okay, verse 6. So you get the picture. Jesus called the 12 together. Jesus anointed them. He gave them power and authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to preach the good news. Does that make sense? Verse 6. Departing, the disciples departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel, and healing everywhere. Okay? So they went out, healed the sick, preached the gospel, Cast out devils. All that stuff. Verse 10. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Okay, so the disciples go out. They minister the gospel. They do the works of the kingdom of God. They come back. And in other gospels, it says that they were excited to tell him all that they had done. So here are the disciples. They just went out. I want you to imagine yourself. Jesus has anointed you to go heal the sick to raise the dead, you actually lay your hands on lepers and you see them healed. You actually would, would cast out devils. You actually would go out proclaiming the word of the Lord with great authority and people will turn their hearts to Jesus and come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You actually went out. And did those things. You came back to Jesus. Jesus, I'm so excited. I did I did this and that and that. And 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 all of this stuff happened, and I saw so many people saved, and so many people are coming to know you, and it's so awesome, and I'm excited. Okay, so then we jump down to verse 12. So there's all these people around. The disciples had just gone out. And I know I've heard some preachers, preach this that. You know, the disciples were tired from their journey, and I'm sure that's true. And they're out in this remote place. And uh, verse 12, now the day was ending, and the twelve came to Jesus, and they said, send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside, and find lodging, and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. So they're out in the middle of nowhere, the people haven't eaten for a long time, and the disciples are like, you got to send these people away so they can go get some food. They're weary, you know. And Jesus says to them, and this is what intrigued me when I, when I kind of discovered this. Jesus said to him, you give them something to eat. That's so weird to me. It's like they come to Jesus, they're like, send these people away. You know, they need to get food. And Jesus looks at them and goes, you give them something to eat. Like, what does that mean? How do you process that? What, what are you talking about, Jesus? That's what I would be, I'd be like, what? You know, Okay, so then it continues on. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless perhaps we go and buy food for all of these people. Because there is about 5,000 men. So here the disciples, get the picture, had just gone out. And they, and they worked the kingdom of God amongst the people. And they, they saw miracles. They saw God move in regions and places and through mass amounts of people. They saw what God was doing in and through them, and then here they get back, and and these people need food, and Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And the first thing that their mind goes to is, how do you get food for all these people? Well, you have to have money. In other gospels, it says, you know, not even a month's worth of wages would pay for one meal for all of these people. They automatically revert their thinking to, to just how things are in our physical realm. And they say, we've got to work to get, to get money to buy food for these people. And then Jesus has them all, he, Jesus, I imagine, just shakes his head, you know, and has them all sit down, and he multiplies the bread and the fish. What was Jesus doing here? In one of the places in John chapter 6, it says right after he says, you give them something to eat, John 6, 6, he says... Uh, He says, this he, talking about Jesus, was saying to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. This was a test. Jesus had just sent them out. They just performed miracles. They just did things beyond comprehension. They actually did with their hands things that people wouldn't believe unless they saw it. They come back and Jesus is like, now let's see if you've got it. Let's see if you have a new perspective. Let's see if your thinking has changed. And their thinking goes right back to the way things have always been. And so the charge that I'm saying is, Jesus is testing them to see, have you gained a kingdom perspective? Have you gained a perspective where you understand the functionings of the kingdom of God? This is the way the kingdom of God works. These people need to be ministered to. We need food. Let's multiply the food. This is the way mankind thinks. These people need ministered to. We need food. Okay, we've got to do a fundraiser. We've got to do this. We've got to work and we've got to get uh, enough money to buy the food. Does that make sense? Are you with me? God wants to, wants to transform our minds. As He say in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. We've got to gain a new perspective where we actually understand, where we actually begin to look upon the Lord and we actually see, okay, this is God's heart for me. This is why God is requiring and asking and, and, and requesting that I live this kind of lifestyle. We can't just grit our teeth and just bear through it. We don't live at, in no compromise out of sheer willpower. We live in no compromise through the power of the Holy Spirit and an understanding of who God's called you to be. God's heart isn't to keep good things from each one of us. I believe more now I have a 20-month-old daughter, Mary Bella, and we have a baby on the way. And after being a father, I believe now more than ever that God desires to bless us. God desires to, yes, prosper us. God desires that we would be people that, that live with, with abundance. That he, he wants to see us succeed. He wants good things for us. You know, I, I can't think of, of anything that I wouldn't want for my daughter to have that's good. He wants good things for us. And the truth is, is yeah, there's there's the prosperity message. And the truth is is that is that is the truth that, that God does want us to prosper. The problem I see with, with a prosperity message, with something that's so one sided, is it's part of the gospel, it's not the gospel in whole. And I think we gotta see we gotta preach the gospel as a whole. That Jesus wants to bless us, that we are children of God, that he wants to prosper us. But oftentimes, the road to prospering, the road to blessing is through trial and persecution. Jesus wants good things for you and for me. But yet he forbids certain things like sex outside of marriage. But he forbids certain things like stealing, like lying. Why? Galatians, you know the song that we always sing? It was for freedom. It was for freedom. It was for freedom. You know that song? Galatians 5 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Have you ever, do you believe it was for freedom that Christ set us free? So so Christ came for freedom's sake. He set us free. So through Christ, we can be free, right? I am free. We can be free. Have there ever been times where you're like, I just don't feel free? I mean, I don't know how many times I felt where I just don't feel free because there's this, this battle going on within me. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 7? Are you there? Cool. Romans chapter 7, verse 14, and this is Paul talking. He's talking about the conflict of two natures. So you've got to stay with me. We're going to read through a few scriptures. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the, the very evil thing that I do not want to do. Here's this idea of this battle between our flesh and our spirit. And, and we have access to freedom through Christ. But nevertheless, we, we have this human nature that, as I said before, is contrary to the Spirit of God. What the human nature desires is contrary to what the Spirit of God desires. And so Paul says very plainly here, the Apostle Paul that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament says, I'm willing in, in my heart, I, I want to do these things, but I sense this battle going on within me. There's this battle going on against my flesh and against the spirit. It's like flesh versus spirit. I want to do this good, but I don't do it. And, the, and, and, and I do the very things that I don't want to do. And I don't do the very things that I want to do. Surely all of us have felt this way before. And then you go to Romans chapter 7, verse 21. And he goes, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Now listen to this. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. How many times have I said, wretched man that I am to myself? The part I want you to catch is he says in verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God. In, in the NIV, it says, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law. The New Living Translation, I love God's law with all my heart. The message says, I truly delight in God's commands. So what is he saying here? I, I, I'm saying that God isn't looking for perfection before resolve in our heart to obey and to delight in his law. Paul is saying very clearly, listen, I do the actual things I don't want to do. What is he talking about? I sin. I go against the very the Spirit of God. I know in my heart the Spirit of God would desire me to do this, but I sin and I fail and I fall at times, and I do this thing. He goes, I'm, I'm confessing to you that there's this battle at war within me, and he goes, I desire to do the things that God's called me to do, but I'm doing things contrary to that. And I see this thing in my nature that's going back and forth. And he says in the scriptures right there that I delight in the commands of God. And I think that's the key. I think the key is that our hearts are set on obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a resolve to live in no compromise. We have a decision in our heart that you delight in the law of God. So listen. If you're living a life and you're like, well, I'm gritting my teeth, I'm bearing through it, I'm not going to sin, even though I really want to sin, I'm just not going to sin because I know I'm not supposed to. But you have no delight in your heart, you have no desire for God, you have nothing going on within you that says, I want to obey the Lord because the Lord is the love of my life. I mean, we got to check ourselves, we've got to look at our hearts. Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commands. We don't obey the commands of Jesus to prove that we love him. The result of love for God is obedience to his commands. If you love God, would you not desire to do his will? If you believe that Jesus is the Lord of your life, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, if you believe that he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, if you believe that in your core, you will desire to obey his commands. Wait, Tyrell, what are you saying? You're condemning me because there are some things that I want to do that are sin. Yes, I understand. There's human nature within us. It's a constant battle. It's a war within our hearts. But as your life goes on, you have a desire to live in no compromise. And you live into righteousness. You see the understanding of being like, God desires us to live this way. Not because he's trying to take good from us, but because he's trying to lead us into good. Because he knows that these things lead us into bondage. Sex outside the bonds of marriage, drunkenness, sorcery, drugs, gossip, pornography, slander, those things lead us into bondage. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. He wants us to live free. He's, it's Father God looking at His child And saying, I want the very best for you. And then he gives us a book that explains how to to live the very best. And we go, forget that, I'm going to live how I want. And we go in the Western church, I go to church, I go to youth group, it's all good, I'm going to live how I want. Oh, how deceived we are. You know what deception is? It's when we think that, with all of our heart, we think that we're right when we're actually wrong. There should be something in our hearts that longs for God, that desires to obey God. And I can, you know what, I can say this, you know, like David said from the stage, you know, I I didn't, I wasn't a church kid my whole life. Like, I lived into the depths of sin. You know, I was all hocked up on all kinds of drugs and all kinds of drunkenness and all kinds of premarital sex. I lived in that world. And let me tell you about my process. It's been 10 years now. And those sins have no grip on me anymore. Those sins have no grip on me anymore. It was a battle. I mean, the first couple years, man, what a battle. The first year of my life in God, I fell so many times, I can't even tell you. But I had a resolve in my heart, and I said, He is my God. I will serve Him. And I kept going, and I kept going, and I kept going. And I'm growing into righteousness, and I'm growing in repentance. And I'm growing into holiness and I'm growing into a knowledge of God. Do I have it all figured out? No stinking way. But I've lived into that world and I've seen the producing of righteousness in me by believing in faith that God is my Savior, that through Him I can do anything. There's people, there's living proof all around you. Stop the excuses, there's no more excuses. No more token vows. No more lies. No compromise, right? Choose God or don't. Jesus would rather have you choose him or don't choose him. He spits the in-between out of his mouth like vomit. I want to tell you a quick analogy. If you have a scale that this right here is really hot temperature and this right here is really cold temperature then the, the, the warm temperature isn't just like a line right here. There's a warm temperature in here where it all feels kind of the same. And the thing is, is that with God, there is a very real line. And he's saying, you know, on, on one side, I'm going to separate the sheeps and the goats. And he goes, on one side are the goats, and on the other side are my sheep. And there is a very real line. There is a very real separation. And he says, I would rather have you be boiling hot for me or cold, and not for me, than somewhere in here in the lukewarm. Why? Because you could be in the lukewarm right here, and you could be in the lukewarm right here, and it feels exactly the same. And Jesus' heart for you is not that you would be deceived, but that you would know where you stand on the scale. That you would test yourself and see if you're actually in the faith. Are you living in the lukewarm area where you're like, well, I go to church, but you know, I compromise here and there, and I and I really don't care, and I'm not growing in God, and I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. Which side are you on? You don't know. You don't know. And God says, I want you to know. I would rather have you know that you're right here than have you be somewhere in here. Obviously, He really wants us here. It's interesting, and I'll wrap up here. It's interesting that in the context of Paul saying this battle between his flesh and the spirit, that, he, that chapter 8, verse 1. You know, we put the chapters and the verses in the Bible. These were originally just letters, just a long letter. So, so it continues on. It's not like chapter is a thought and another chapter is a thought. It's, it's together. And one of the key words you can figure out that, that stuff is talking about previous stuff, is the word therefore. He's saying, therefore, because of what I previously said, this is what I'm saying now. Okay, so chapter 8, verse 1, in this idea of battling spirit versus flesh, he goes, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation comes when we are trying to earn our salvation through works and through abiding by the law. I'm not saying that if we don't abide by the law and we don't live this legalistic life that we can't succeed in god I, it's, that's the total wrong focus condemnation is the result of those that think that by obeying rules they can be saved and thus they're saying that you're your own savior and you don't need jesus none of us can save ourselves we've all fallen short of the of the glory of god We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're saved by grace through faith. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We will be saved because it's with the mouth that we confess and are saved. And it's with the heart that we believe producing righteousness. Condemnation comes when we say oh I'm just failing because I just can't do it. And we don't have an understanding that we're a child of God. And let me tell you, condemnation, the fruit of condemnation is depression. You have no joy. You live a legalistic life. You walk around feeling like you have to abide by all these rules. It's the opposite of relationship and love. You're a child of God. He wants to bless you. He wants everything good for you. He is your father, the perfect father. The perfect father wants good for you. But what about the trials? What about the hard times? What about when my friends, what about when I don't have any friends because I don't want to partake in that garbage? It's all to reap eternal life for you. It's all for the greatest prosperity you could ever imagine. That's one problem with prosperity is I don't think God says prosperity and he thinks a new house and a new car. I think he thinks prosperity, he thinks a prosperity of spirit, a prosperity of life. A prosperity of anointing, a prosperity of a preacher, of someone that will go advance the kingdom of God. Let your ministry prosper, that God's name be lifted high. That's the prosperity in the heart of God. But he still doesn't want us to suffer and be poor, he doesn't like it when we suffer. I want to close with these couple of scriptures that just have really helped me in my walk with God and just understanding who he is. If you want, you can turn to Exodus real quick. When we start to understand God as a father and us as his children and that he desires good things for us that he, and that he loves us no matter what. There's nothing you can do that will make God love you less. He loves you. He loves every human being with the most passionate, radical love you can imagine. It doesn't, he, loves, he loves the most horrible, murderous, rapist person just as much as he loves you and me. There's nothing you can do That would make him love you less. He loves us with all his heart. But he's called us to respond to that love. Our choice is to respond to the love of God. When we begin to understand that Christ loves us. That he's called us according to his graces. That we have the ability to live lives of no compromise. We start to live in that relationship. We start to overcome sin. And we start to live into who God's called us to be. So it's important to understand who God is and how he sees us. Exodus 33, this is one of my favorite things in the scripture. Verse 18, Moses said, I pray that you would show me your glory. Talking to God as a man talks to another man face to face. I pray that you would show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So, and then God says to Moses, I'm going to hide you in this cleft of the rock, I'm going to cover your face, and I'm going to pass by you, you can't see my face, no man can see my face and live, but you could see my backside, and he goes, I'm going to cover your face, I'm going to pass by, and I'm going to proclaim my name. So I'm like, when this hit me, I've read it a lot, but when it hit me that God is going to proclaim his own name, I was like, I better pay attention, Right? Okay, so chapter 34, verse 5 is is where it picks up. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. So Moses was calling upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord descended. Okay, so verse 6. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed. This is the Lord proclaiming who the Lord is. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Now listen to this. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now listen. This is what kind of struck me is that is that God is saying all of these things. He's compassionate. He's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in loving kindness and truth, he, and he's saying all of these good things, and then at the end of proclaiming his name, he says, but, but by the way, not leaving the wicked unpunished. And I was like, why does he say that? I don't under, I don't, I'm not getting it. Well, get, listen to this, listen to this. Verse 7, who keeps loving kindness for thousands... Who, I'm sorry, who keeps loving kindness for thousands... Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. In other, in other versions he says for thousands of generations. So he says, I forgive iniquity and I bless those who honor me for thousands of generations. But he goes, but I, but I won't let the guilty go unpunished. And I curse the children of, of, the, of the parents and the, and the grandparents to the third and fourth generation. Do you see what I'm talking about here? God is proclaiming his name. And in proclaiming his, his name, he says, I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in loving kindness and truth, and I bless to the hundreds of thousands of years. I do curse to the three and 400 years, but look at the difference. My heart for you is to bless you. My heart for my people is that, yes, I don't leave the guilty unpunished, and I curse to the 300 and 400 years, But I bless those that honor me and obey me to the hundreds of thousands of years. Do you see the difference? So God is proclaiming his name. Listen, I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. And I want to bless you to hundreds of thousands of years. The heart of God isn't. Well, it's got to be equal. If you obey me, I'll bless you to hundreds of thousands of years. But if you disobey me, I'll curse you to hundreds of thousands of years. Do you see the difference? If you don't obey me, you must pay for your sin. But if you obey me, oh, oh, take take everything. And And then you have that Jesus sympathizes with our weakness. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our own weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet was without sin. He sympathizes with you where you're at. Yes, he sympathizes with you. He knows your battle with your friends. He knows your battles with with the people around you and the things before you. Romans 2, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads us to repentance? And finally, Hebrews 2. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Would you stand with me? <clears throat> Sorry. I just want, I know I covered a lot of information, but I just want to give you just a minute to commit. To live a life of no compromise. To go before the Lord and just say, Lord, I commit. So just bow your heads with me. I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you 30 seconds, okay? God, I just thank you for your word and thank you for your will and thank you for your love for each one of us. Father, I just pray for a revelation of how you view us, of how much you love us. God, I pray that this generation would be a generation marked by love. That we would know the compassion and the kindness and the mercy of God. That we would know your heart for each one of us, God. So we're gathered together today. We've come to this conference, God. And I pray that this moment would be a life-changing moment. Where we actually commit to living a life of no compromise. And you give us the grace to do it. The empowerment. The ability to do it, God. So you just talk to God. You just in your own words. Take 30 seconds. Repent for for living in compromise. And commit to living no compromise. God, I thank you for these students here. And I pray that you would anoint world changers in this room, God. Anoint these young people to fill the role in the body of Christ that you've called them to fill. And I pray for an utter satisfaction in exactly who you've called them to be. Not in being someone else, not in being John Egan or David Perkins, but in being who you've called them to be. Anoint them, fan into flame the gifts within them, that your name be lifted high and you be great that your house would be filled, God. We love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Hey, bless you guys. Go have a good lunch. And over time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart, they have got passion for God, they're leading intercession on their schools, they're set apart, consecrated under God, and they've got a vision and a mission for their life.